Teresa Corley was having a bad night when she got into an argument with her boyfriend. When she left the bar they were at in Franklin, Massachusetts, it only got worse. I don't think she would have gone to the police station. Yeah, I think she just wanted to make her way home. She just wanted to get home. Time kind of stopped, and then I remember the Bellingham police coming to the house. I think somebody local knew that area in Bellingham. Yeah, you'd have to be local to know that area. What happened to her should have never happened. Not in Bellingham. From Boston 25 News, this is New England's Unsolved, the podcast of cold cases, crime files, and questions waiting for answers. I'm Dalton Maine. On today's show, we'll look at a horrific evening for one young woman and the sisters left struggling for answers in a small town that stayed too quiet for a generation. In 1978, Teresa was 19 years old and working to put herself through college. But that December night, she just wanted to get home. This is a conversation between Bob Ward and Jerry Hood, one of Teresa's sisters. Going back to the night, you know, and the way it all starts at the train stop yeah. that night. And it all starts with a fight between her and uh, the guy she was seeing at the time. Right. And, you know, the thing that gets me is it's the first week of December. Yeah. And it must have been cold. She's only wearing a corduroy jacket and a T-shirt. Yeah. And she storms out of that bar and nobody goes after her to give her a ride no. to help her out. No. None of her friends. Um, or none of her friends. And after that point in time, um, her friends became silent. The girls that she hung around with in high school became silent. Um, and didn't really talk to us and let us know what they knew from that night. Um, one of them has since died. Uh, one of them is still out there and still to this day, even though I've tried to contact and reach out, she's remained silent. So I'm thinking people know a lot more than what they've, they've come forward with. As Jerry Hood explains, Teresa left the train stop lounge in Franklin after a fight with her boyfriend. When Teresa couldn't get a ride home from her friends, she started hitchhiking. In 2007, Massachusetts State Police Lieutenant Kevin Shea sat down with Bob Ward to explain the timeline of Teresa's night and what investigators know about what happened to her. Unfortunately, she was out hitchhiking that night, but she certainly didn't deserve to die. The first ride Teresa gets is here to this apartment in Franklin. Three young men who saw her leave the bar picked her up, promising a ride home to Bellingham. Instead, Teresa is lured here. Police say one of them starts sexually assaulting Teresa in a bedroom, and the other two try to join in. But Teresa fights back, quickly dresses, and she gets away. They term her as, as mad as fire, and she got dressed and got out of there. It is now 425 in the morning, and Teresa is hitchhiking again. Two Gorelick Farm truck drivers pick her up, the first giving her a ride to Gorelick's, the second drops her off at the Bellingham Police Station. He was clear and said that she was mumbling her words and she was clearly intoxicated. By 4.30 a.m., Teresa is now less than a mile from home, but she'll never make it. Teresa Corley is last seen alive at 5.30, hitchhiking. At about 7, Linda Peterson's mother calls. My mom knew Teresa would never stay out without calling her, and she was very upset. She kept on telling me, no, something's wrong. The last thing investigators know about that night is that Teresa was dropped off in the center of Bellingham, right outside the police station and just a mile from her home. I don't think she would have gone to the police station. Yeah, I think she just wanted to make her way home. 
They just wanted to be at home. And the way to do that back then was just put your thumb out right. and hope right. for strangers you know, to come. She was from, you know, but she was from the city. And, I, and hitchhiking, I didn't hitchhike, but hitchhiking was her way of getting around. Um, she, we were used to public transportation. There was none in Bellingham. And so she took up the habit of hitchhiking. She had no fear. She really had no fear. The police say that the witnesses told them that she was intoxicated. But she As Jerry Hood noted, her family had moved out of the city and into Bellingham to live in a quiet suburban community. Something bad happened in that Right. Picked up and then last seen um, hitchhiking over by that Dairy Queen. Yeah. And that's heartbreaking for me just because in my head I can kind of see it. Right. And all that stuff is still there. Right. And she's so close to home and she never right. gets there. Right. It was a brutal night that devastated her family and the Bellingham community. December 8th, Teresa Corley's body is found in a ditch on the side of Route 495. She is naked, her jeans, her jacket thrown next to her body. Teresa was strangled, possibly with a ligature. There were no drag marks on her body that we could see that she was dragged into the woods, so obviously she had to be carried in there, um, either by one or two individuals, and placed on the ground. Police have pieced together an incomplete picture of that night with witness accounts. First, they know she left the train stop in downtown Franklin. Second, they know she was picked up by three men she may have known. She was taken to an apartment complex where police say she was sexually assaulted. When she runs out of the apartment, she mistakenly grabs a wrong shoe. She's picked up by a truck driver headed to the Gorelick Farms headquarters. From there, another truck driver drops her off at the Bellingham police station at about 5 a.m. People on their way to work that morning told police they saw Teresa walking along Main Street, but that's the last anyone has been able to determine about her night. Again, Jerry Hood. Well, I think at the time, um, we were all in a state of shock, and I remember trying to just act normal. That was, that was the thing for me. I was trying to act normal. I don't, whether, it was probably like I was in a state of shock. Um, I vaguely remember her, her funeral. Um, but you, I think at that point, you're just running off of, of grief. Um, it would bother me, you know, when nobody was around. That's when, when, when I would take my time to, to break down. You would internalize um, it. I would, right. I remember going back to school, uh, kind of having people kind of looking at you, you know, and you feel like people, because they didn't have, you know, the counseling and stuff like that that the kids would have now. But I, feel, I thought I just had to be normal again, just make everything was normal. She died, but we go on. What about um, the questions about who did asked, this to her? Nobody asked about her at the time. Did you wonder who did this? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I never, but I know for myself, I went on kind of with my life. I know my older sister, Linda, was kind of the one um, that was put in the position to be asking, to be going to the police, asking the questions. Um, and I tried to just put it aside. Retracing her steps through that hellish evening has been part of her family's nearly 40-year struggle to understand how and why she was found dead and stripped of her clothes on the side of the road two days later. Bob Ward grew up in Franklin, just next to Bellingham, and worked as a bagger in the same grocery store as Teresa when they were both teenagers. So this is a case he's been very close to. Well, I, 
I knew Teresa Corley. She was somebody I worked with at a grocery store, Star Market. It was located in Franklin. It was my first job. Mm-hmm. And um, she was a cool kid. She was pretty, and she was friendly, and she was flirtatious, and she was somebody that uh, you look forward to seeing. And I wasn't alone. The other people I worked with, it was the same way. She was just one of those bubbly people, very positive people, made you feel good. It, it was difficult to accept that a person like Teresa Corley, who was so friendly, so upbeat, so positive, could be murdered. It just shocked us all. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, I never knew what happened to Teresa. Mm-hmm. I just knew she was found on the side of 495. Yeah. The details of what happened to her were completely unknown to me. I knew that there was never an arrest. I knew that over the years, and I didn't understand why. But, you know, I still live in the community. I still live in Franklin, and it's always bothered me what happened to Teresa Corley. Mm-hmm. So when New England's Unsolved was started in 1999, I was asked by management to come up with four unsolved cases that we could profile. So I remember I came up with two cases that were very well-known, but I wanted to know what happened to Teresa Corley. So mm-hmm. I made it my business to start New England's Unsolved with Teresa Corley's case because I wanted to know what happened to her. You know, who could do something like this? Mm-hmm. And that's how New England's Unsolved started, and that's how we started with our investigation into Teresa Corley. So where did you start when you professionally decided, okay, you know, I don't just want to know personally. I want to help the community find out what happened. How did you get started on that process? At the time... Bill Keating was becoming the DA. I think he was sworn in a day or two before I asked to do something on Teresa Corley. So when my request went in, I talked to somebody in the state police, and that person talked to the DA and briefed him on the case. So once I had the district attorney on record telling me about Teresa's case, I had to reach out to Teresa's family. Now, I went to Teresa's funeral. I went to her wake but I did not know Teresa's family at all. I remember her talking about her sisters, but I didn't know any of them. I didn't know their names. So I had to find that out. And I remember picking up the phone and calling for the very first time. And I was very nervous about it because this was a family that I didn't know, but the victim was somebody that I did know and I cared about. And I didn't want to do anything to anger them or upset them because I was calling out of the blue decades later. Teresa's Mm -hmm. case had faded from the headlines. So I was very fortunate in that I had, you know, I remember talking to one of her sisters many times and we just talked until they felt comfortable and they said, sure, come on over. And I met uh, Diane and Linda at that point and we did our interviews then. And that's that was the basis for the first New England's Unsolved we did on Teresa back in 1999. Well, and, and this is something that, you know, you told me that you met Jerry Hood later, another of Teresa's sisters. And one thing that she told you, I think, back recently was that, you know, she said Bellingham didn't kill Teresa. You know, even though it's a small town that has been, you know, frustratingly quiet, um, you know, she said she loves Bellingham and she loves the community. And it, it must mean something to them that, you know, you were a member of their nearby community and that, you know, you knew Teresa fleetingly, but you still care. I mean, does that kind of speak to that relationship in the community? I think it does. You know, she's right. Bellingham did not kill Teresa Corley. People in Bellingham and Franklin killed Teresa Corley. And when I say people, what I mean is that there's, I believe, a conspiracy of silence. I think there were, may have been one killer. I could be wrong about this. You know, I, you know <laughs> we'll see where the facts go. 
but there are people within the community of Bellingham and Franklin who have knowledge about this case, but for one reason or another, for all these decades, they are choosing not to say anything, and I find that unacceptable. For nearly 40 years, Teresa's case has remained a puzzle in which the pieces don't quite fit together. Teresa's body wasn't found until a call came in to the Bellingham police station. The caller said his name was John Burlington. He was a businessman from Connecticut who said he pulled off to the side of the road to relieve himself and saw Teresa's body. But he didn't call 911. He called the station's general line. In the decades since that call, police say there is no John Burlington. There never was. Boston 25 News at 10. Good evening, I'm Mark Ockerblum. And I'm Vanessa Welch. Every night, live with breaking news. We are following developing news. Chief Meteorologist Kevin Lamanowitz's forecast so you can plan ahead. This heavy rain's on its way late tomorrow afternoon. Exclusive investigations telling you both sides of the story. How do you explain this level of incompetence? Viewers reached out. No one's been held accountable. More reporters making sure you know what's happening in your neighborhood. We're live in Salem. Live in Watertown. Live in Boston. Boston 25 News at 10. And it all starts at the Bellingham Police Station, the day Teresa's body is found. At about 4.30 in the afternoon of December 8, 1978, a man calling himself John Burlington of Connecticut called Bellingham Police on an inside line. He stated that he was on his way home and he stopped at the side of 495 in that area to relieve himself. And when he walked into the, wood, the woods area there, he observed the uh, female lying on her back. State Police Lieutenant Kevin Shea is skeptical. It seems kind of uh, unusual because um, that area of 495, unless you were from the area, you wouldn't know that that tract of land was actually part of Bellingham. There is more. Right after the John Burlington call, a man walked into Bellingham Police Headquarters and instantly drew suspicion. An individual came into the Bellingham Police Station uh, asking if that was uh, Teresa Corley's body they found on 495. Uh, the dispatcher seemed um, somewhat concerned because he said he never gave that call out over the year and how would this individual know that there was a, a body down at Route 495. State police now think that the man who found Teresa Corley's body right here on the side of Route 495 30 years ago is not from Connecticut, but in fact from Teresa's town, Bellingham. Bellingham was a quiet, welcoming town for the Corley family when they moved in but its silence after Teresa's death has proved more torturous than they could have imagined. Again, Jerry Hood. But how difficult is that, being here and not knowing who did this? Well, I think you sit back and it, I've always felt Bellingham's home. I don't, I don't put the town down in any way. I love living in Bellingham. This, this is my hometown and I wouldn't let Teresa's murder, um, the town didn't murder her per se. Now that Hood's children are grown up, she says she feels comfortable revisiting the case and dedicating more time to finding out what happened to her sister. Well, tell me what you've done in the last um, couple of months, what you've done. You've been very active. It's been a year almost now since I um, developed, you know, a Facebook page dedicated to her, you know, Justice for Teresa Corley. Um, and a lot of people have come forward. And, and what I get from that Facebook page is I thought she was forgotten. I really thought 
the whole town forgot about her, people forgot about her. There are some in town that would probably like to forget about her. Um, but people came for like somebody she babysat for. Little boy, oh, I remember Terry, she was the best babysitter I had, you know, she was comforting. You know, just the stories that came out about her were, wow. Then you just realize this is even more of an injustice, that this person was a good person. She enriched other people's lives and she was, you know, left dead on 495, I mean, you know. It's got to help, though, in a little bit just in your grief, knowing that she meant something to so many yeah. other people as right. well. I'm sure that helps, right. too. Right. And if you're getting these unexpected stories, it's almost right. like getting a little postcard right. from her, you know, right. from her past. But how has it been going in, in, in the year that you've had the, the website up? Yeah. How do you think the website is helping? I've gotten a lot of, um, different, you know, different names of different people, and it, it kind of keeps coming back to the same people. Um, a lot of people have come forward with... Um, common names, throwing around common names. And my hope is that um, those common names will be reviewed by this, you know, the district attorney, the, the district attorney's office and the state police. That interview with Jerry Hood was recorded in 2015. In the two years since, the same names and questions have come up. Like what exactly happened at that apartment complex? I've been told it was a sexual assault. Um, I was told that she was held down by two men while another man raped her, or attempted to rape her. Um, you know, and that, that came directly from the, the state police. Uh, my sister and Diane and I sat down in a meeting with them, and that came directly from them. Um, but they, they never charged those men with um, anything. No, no, I think at the time, what I was told was that they were trying to hold off to get, hopefully, murder charges. So they never were charged for the assault. Earlier this year, Teresa's body was exhumed with the hopes of collecting potential DNA samples from the grave. The family has been pushing for this exhumation for a long time. We really want these answers. And if it takes going into her grave to try to get that little piece of DNA that might get us those answers, we were willing to do it. Teresa's unsolved murder has devastated her family. But here, 38 years later, a chemist collects nine and a half fingernails that will be analyzed for DNA. And Teresa's sisters are hoping justice might finally be in sight. But after almost four decades, what could be left? And what can police tell from what they've collected? It's going to be very difficult to know what they can get until somebody tries. We spoke with a forensic DNA expert from Boston University about it. Her name's Robin Cotton. So what happens to DNA over time is it becomes degraded. And, and if you want to kind of visualize that, you can visualize going to the fabric store, buying a spool of thread, unraveling the entire spool of thread. That's a chromosome. One chromosome, whole spool of thread. Over time, every week, you go in and you take a scissors and you make five cuts. After, you know, 39 years, you've made a whole lot of cuts in that spool of thread. Now the pieces are small. Current DNA testing methods require fragments of DNA to be of a particular size. And if the DNA has become too short to allow you to copy the size that you need, then you have to go to another testing method. And some of those testing methods, while they're known, technology is known, they're used for other purposes, they haven't quite moved their way into forensic science. 
Essentially, the process for extracting and testing DNA from possible samples, like a fingernail, destroys some of it. There's loss there. Exactly how much, people haven't studied a huge amount, but it, it's, you know, like suppose you lose 25%. Well, that can make the difference between getting a result and not getting a result. Somebody who approaches this in a very thoughtful way might be able to kind of hedge everybody's bets a little bit by, so it all depends on how many cells were there and what condition are they in now. While she isn't confident the exhumation will provide definitive answers, it isn't necessarily giving the family false hope. I don't think so. I just think that you have to go about it realistically. Routine methods that are good for evidence that's two or three years old probably are not suitable for 39-year-old DNA. But, as she says, you won't know until you try. I don't Still see know. any way to predict it. When, when I worked in the lab in Maryland and we got these old cases, that's just how it went. Sometimes they surprised you, and sometimes you were disappointed. Cases like this test the limits of our technology in criminal investigations and help push investigators to find new ways to answer aging questions. I think the right people are asking questions about this and are not satisfied with what they're hearing. The facts in Teresa's case just don't add up. Somebody's responsible for it. Now, a lot of time has passed. A lot of witnesses have passed away. There are gonna be memories that are faulty, but a lot of witnesses were interviewed back in the day. Some of them can't be interviewed again. But what I mean by the right people are asking questions now, there's a new generation of state police technicians who are examining this and looking at these facts. And they believe something can be done. There may never be an arrest for Teresa Corley's murder. It's very possible that the person who did this is dead. But the value here is that the family and that community finds out what happened to Teresa. They, we all deserve answers. I mean, this young woman was only 19 years old and she was raped and strangled and left on the side of 495. How does that happen in Massachusetts? And how is it that nobody talks and we have no answers and life just goes on as if her death didn't matter? Well, Teresa Corley's life mattered, her death matters. Even in 2017, it still matters. And so it gives me some hope that somebody somewhere will do the right thing. Somebody will say something and that'll match up with whatever forensic evidence is going to be uncovered with this exhumation. Maybe that's how we find out. Just a few years ago, Teresa's mother passed away without ever finding out what happened to her daughter. And in the Corley family's decades-long search for justice, its new leads and the need to find out what happened to Teresa that keeps her sisters now going. What is it that you're hoping? Like, we're, we're going to reach out to people for information. Right. What is it that you, through your website, through the story, what is it that you, you want people to focus on and try to try to help you with? I want definite names. You know, I think at this point in time, these, these, these men um, have gone on. They've had families. They've had a chance to have a family, have children, probably have grandchildren at this stage. Um, I think they have to look within themselves and, and I think they have to be a little nervous that I think we're coming for them, you know, and 
look at their lives now. You know, if one, even one of them came forward um, to let us know what happened. You know, give us that information. Do I think somebody's going to be behind bars? I don't. I don't. But I just want to know exactly what happened. Well, one of the things that, that we've heard is that there is DNA yeah. on her clothing. That um, they're just waiting for the technology to catch up, That's and right. it's only a couple of years away. Right. And I've heard from other police right. people that yeah, that is what's happening. Yeah. That's how fast this field is right. developing. Right. Um, let me ask you about that. What your What are your thoughts on that? On the potential that maybe after all this time there might be some science that actually solves this instead yeah. of waiting for somebody to, to help you. I think it's great news, and if it has to be another two years of waiting, you know. It's another two years, but at least we'll get our answers. Um, 37 years, even though to the majority seems like, oh, it's such a long time. This is just yesterday to us. This is still just yesterday. Um, so if we have to wait another two years, so be it. And I'm, I'm really hoping that they'll, they'll get what they need off of their clothing. We're a family. We're all focused on finding our answers. Um, what drives me is what happened to Teresa was was a true injustice um, and I just keep pushing and now that I have the time I just keep pushing to get to get those answers I mean my mother always said I should be a lawyer because I never backed out of an argument um, and now I'm I'm, I'm, I'm arguing here and, and I'm gonna keep going with this for as long as I can it would be so easy to just walk away from it no it? no that's walking away from her you know, that's walking away from her. New England's Unsolved is a production of Boston 25 News. It was created by Bob Ward, and the podcast is produced by me, Dalton Maine. With additional sound mixing help from Sean Anker and archival assistance from Nicole Gordon, as always, special thanks to Mike Oliveira, the news director who greenlit this project. We'd also like to say a very special thank you to Aaron Futch, who donated his time to compose a score specially for this episode. You can find links to more of his work and contact information on our website at boston25.com unsolved. <laughs>